From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much. For tuning in to EWTN's Open Line, we talk faith, family, and fellowship on Tuesday, and we hope that your family was full of faith and um, uh, did a lot of fellowshipping yesterday on uh, on uh, Labor Day and had a, a great time. I know we had a very relaxed weekend. It was lovely, and I know that Father Wade had some sort of a just uh, cornucopian feast over at the Fathers of Mercy General at House yesterday. And producer man Michael McCall had hamburgers and hot dogs. So that's the rundown of the room here. Uh, hope you all had a great time. If you'd like to be part of the program today, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky. And Ace McKay is our celebrity social media maven today. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and the fedora will get it to us before the end of the program and our host as he is every single tuesday father wade benezus how are you i am doing fantastic jack i'm here at the fathers of mercy where indeed we had labor day celebrated yesterday with what they call i guess uh the lazy man's barbecue we had pizza and beer and soft drinks, <laughs> so, but it was still very, very good, and it was a, a great change, kind of a mix-up, which was a good mix-up, I think, and there were just a, a few of us home, so it made more sense, actually, and uh, so it was great. It was a great time. Glad to hear that you and Johnette uh, had a very relaxing weekend, especially after the, the family celebration of a few weeks ago, a couple weeks back, so it's good to have a little bit of rest. Awesome. Very good. Was Father Geraci home? You know, he wasn't. He wasn't. Oh, well, so you got, he to, was eat. Probably so you, so you off. got to eat. Yeah, well, well, we got to eat. <laughs> we got a little more beer because he wasn't here. And uh, he was probably off somewhere else having his own Labor Day celebration. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, so, Father, you're going to talk about um, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me today's topic. It's a bit of a, well, it's a bit of a mystery. It's a bit of a mystery is right. And and. Unf- I shouldn't say unfortunately. I was going to say, unfortunately, I, I don't mean an Alfred Hitchcock mystery or an Agatha Christie mystery, because I love the, both of those individuals and uh, some of the great mysteries they put out. But what I want to talk about this week now, Jack, as our springboard topic, is what does mystery mean in Catholic theology? Well, in the New Testament, the word mystery is applied to the sublime revelation of the gospel itself. Things in the gospel that would not be known otherwise as truths of the faith, capital T, unless they were properly 
and precisely revealed to us. Uh, for example, in Matthew 13, 11, we read, And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. In Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, we read, for example, that their hearts may be encouraged as they are knit together in love to have all the riches of assured understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Huh? In 1 Timothy 3, 9, we read, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. There's another one there. And how about 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, wherein we read, Lo, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed." So these four scripture passages are, are by no means an exhaustive list of, of, of the meaning of mystery, quote-unquote, in Catholic theology. So in, in conformity with these biblical uses, usages, and, and other ones that I did not say, just because of the essence of time, theologians give the name mystery to revealed truths. Again, theologians give the name mystery to reveal truths, truths of the faith that would not be known otherwise unless they were, again, precisely revealed to us. That is, truths that surpass the powers of natural human reason, indeed, things that we could not know unless they were properly revealed to us. For example, how is it possible, Jack, for a human woman, Mary, to give birth to God as man, Jesus Christ? Simply put, it's a sublime mystery. Father John Harden of Happy Memory notes that, theologically speaking, a mystery is a divinely revealed truth whose very possibility cannot be rationally conceived before it is revealed, and after revelation of it, whose inner essence cannot be fully understood by the finite mind. The incomprehensibility of revealed mysteries derives from the fact that they are manifestations of God himself who is infinite and therefore beyond the complete grasp of a created human mind or intellect. Nevertheless, Father Hardin teaches, though incomprehensible, mysteries are intelligible once revealed. One of the primary duties of a believer, therefore, through prayer, study, and experience, is to grow in faith, that is, to develop an understanding of what God has revealed in the particular mystery in question. Now, regarding mystery and liturgical spirituality, we often hear the word uh, during the celebration of, of Holy Mass, for example. So regarding mystery and liturgical spirituality, we say that mystery theology, again, liturgically speaking, is a form of liturgical theology advocated by the well-known Benedictine abbot Otto Kossel in the late 20th century, or early 20th century. Its theological premise is that the Mass is a representation of all the mysteries of Christ's life, and not only the sacrificial death on the cross. Its ritual stress is on such involvement of the faithful that they consider themselves real contributors to the liturgical action in which they take part. That's also from Father Hardin commenting on Abbot Otto Kossel. Worth noting is that these thoughts of Abbot Kossel, Jack, contributed in part to the Second Vatican Council's teachings on actual participation, the Latin phrase there, participatio actuosa, and active participation, the Latin phrase there is participatio activa, during the celebration of the holy sacrifice of the Mass by all 
thus enabling congregants to literally and mystically enact their baptismal and confirmation sacramental callings and graces. Echoing all of this, Pope St. Pius XII once said, quote, Mysteries revealed by God should not remain as treasures in a field, useless. No, they have been given by God to help the spiritual progress of those who study them in a spirit of devotion. I think it's worth repeating, Pius XII again, Pope Pius XII, mysteries revealed by God should not remain as treasures in a field, useless. No, not at all, huh? They have been given by God to help the spiritual progress of those who study them in a spirit of devotion. So once baptized and confirmed, sustained by regular Eucharist and confirmation, uh, whether single, married, or in holy orders, and even if one be a valid candidate for the anointing of the sick, living all seven of these beautiful sacraments, what we call the sacramental economy of the church, and we all want an economy to be good and strong, right? Living this good, strong sacramental economy leads us into these sacred mysteries. We wouldn't have known there were seven sacraments, qua seven sacraments, unless they were revealed and instituted by Christ himself, for example. So we can say that the sacraments are mysteries. In fact, the Eastern Church call the sacraments mysteries. They, they don't use too much the phrase sacrament, although that's what they mean, and they'll admit that that's what they mean, but the sacred mysteries. huh? So that's just one example. So I'm looking for callers today during this uh, hour of Open Line Tuesday Live. How has your faith, your family, and your fellowship been fed by regular Eucharist and regular confession. The only two sacraments of the seven that can be received over and over and over again with much frequency. The other five cannot. That said, if you're married, your marriage lived in a life of sanctifying grace also feeds your faith, family, and fellowship. All right? If you've received the anointing of the sick in a state of sanctifying grace, your anointing of the sick aids not only you, but your relationships with others, right? Uh, my consecrated life and my priesthood in the sacrament of holy orders does the same. But I want to know especially how the two sacraments of Eucharist and confession, reconciliation, the sacrament of conversion, the catechism calls it as well, I want to know how these two sacraments especially have fed your life, your sacramental economy overall, in making your faith, your family, and your fellowship stronger than ever. Maybe you're a convert, maybe you're a cradle Catholic. Call us and give us a witness. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, another great mystery in our lives is how you hear this broadcast in the beginning. 
It could be any number of sources that are sending you uh, this audio transmission over the airwaves. You could be listening uh, at EWTN.com on the EWTN app. You could be listening uh, to one of the great streaming platforms across the uh, United States and the rest of the world. Or you could be listening on an AM or FM radio station in your area or maybe their app. And we want to support those for those folks first and foremost because they are doing a great work of evangelization and of catechesis to uh, strengthen and enlarge the body of Christ. Um, but also, if there's an area maybe where you're living that you have to listen to mm-hmm. some sort of an online source because you don't have an AM or an FM Catholic radio station in your area, perhaps God is tugging on your heart to maybe look into the possibility of getting that started. It's no small feat. But God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And if you would like to learn maybe more about that, simply send us an email. Send Steve an email at uh, radio at EWTN.com and put that to the attention of Steve. And uh, we'll get back to you and tell you how you might take the first steps towards bringing Catholic Radio to your community. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Rose in St. Louis, Missouri, and Carrie in Española, New Mexico. But first, I've got a question uh, from a YouTube viewer, Father Wade, that we wanted to talk about. And that is Matthew, who's watching us on YouTube. And he says, Dear Father, why are the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception largely in charge of the Divine Mercy devotion and not your own more aptly named order? Boy, what a great question that is, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, I've discovered, as have other Fathers of Mercy and other Marians of the Immaculate Conception, when the men of the respective two communities are out on the road preaching, whether it's a parish mission, whether it's a weekend conference, a day-long retreat, a lot of laity get the two orders mixed up. In fact, this is no joke. This is no joke what I'm about to say. I've actually been called Father Wade Calloway before, okay? So uh, Father Don Calloway is with the Marians of the Immaculate Conception. I'm Father Wade Meniz is with the Fathers of Mercy. So uh, the reason why the Marians of the Immaculate Conception are such big promoters of the divine mercy devotion and the life of now saint, canonized saint, Faustina, is because of their Polish founding. The Stockbridge, Massachusetts Foundation of the Marians of the Immaculate Conception, the MICs, that's the acronym after their name, they come from a Polish foundation and were established in Stockbridge in the United States from that Polish foundation. So, in the late 70s, early 80s, after St. John Paul II went through St. Faustina's diary with the fine-tooth comb and found nothing heretical in it based on the original uh, Polish translations from Faustina herself, excuse me, original Polish writings of Faustina herself, because there had been some faulty translations into the English from the original Polish of Faustina. When John Paul II had discerned that there was nothing heretical, he wanted her cause promoted in the United States, okay? Who did he turn to, and rightly so? He turned to the Marians of the Immaculate Conception precisely because of their Polish founding, because St. Faustina Kowalska, the Divine Mercy Seer, her full name in consecrated religious life is St. Faustina Kowalska of the Most Blessed Sacrament. She was a Polish nun. Now, we... 
Fathers of Mercy are the Fathers of Mercy of the Immaculate Conception. That's the official title of our community, uh, colloquially, if you will, known as the Fathers of Mercy. But it's interesting that the Marians of the Immaculate Conception are just that, the Marians of the Immaculate Conception. We're the Fathers of Mercy of the Immaculate Conception. So there are similarities there. And because we have the charism of mercy in our apostolate of itinerant missionary preaching and the preaching of parish missions and the staffing of rural parishes and, and promoting that charism of God as his greatest attribute, we also promote the Divine Mercy Chaplet and the life of St. Faustina. But the MICs have especially done so precisely because of their Polish foundation and were asked to do so by St. John Paul II. So Matthew, fantastic question. Thank you for uh, typing it in today in our sidebar and, and asking about that very uh, similarity or, or some differences between the two communities and why uh, those differences exist. Great question. Thank you so much. Two, two lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Rose in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Rose, thank you so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for answering my call. I'm uh, calling Father Wade and to ask about praise and worship songs used during Mass. I have no problem with those hymns or songs, or whatever they're called, um, as far as personal use, but it just it seems like it promotes a me and Jesus kind of thing, and I thought the Mass was supposed to be a communal response of praise to our God. Yeah, you make a good point, Rose. You know, like with many things within Catholic teaching and Catholic liturgical spirituality, it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. We both do this, the more traditional hymns, for example, and this, the more contemporary hymns. However, in the selection of contemporary hymns, number one, we want to make sure that there's nothing in the wording of those hymns, more appropriately called songs, which you intimated in your question. The more contemporary songs... Um, do not contain anything in their wording that is heretical. Uh, you're actually not going to find too much of that precisely because the wording is so generic, okay, where the more traditional Catholic hymns are very theological in nature and they defend a doctrine. So, for example, the, the very beautiful traditional German hymn, which we have a beautiful translation of, Holy God, we praise thy name. Uh, if you look at the entire song and all of its verses, it's defending the Trinitarian doctrine of the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. Tantum ergo, O salutaris hostia, it's defending the doctrine of transubstantiation, the doctrine of the most blessed sacrament. So you're not going to find that in some of the, the more contemporary hymns, which have both Catholic uh, writers and Protestant writers. In fact, it's quite common. It is, is, it is very, very common as an itinerant missionary preacher. When I preach a week-long parish mission, and the first thing I do when I arrive, as do other Fathers of Mercy missionary preachers, the first thing we do when we arrive on the Friday or early Saturday is preach all the weekend masses, and then the mission itself begins either Sunday night or Monday night. It usually begins Monday night if there's a Sunday evening liturgy, because it's just too difficult to start a parish mission on the Sunday night after the last regularly scheduled Sunday mass. But regardless of that, many times the Sunday evening mass if it's regularly scheduled, is a so-called life teen mass, or it's a so-called young adult mass. It often has contemporary hymns. Not only contemporary hymns, it has contemporary Christian hymns that are currently being played on a regular basis on Christian contemporary radio. 
which has its own top 50 and own top 40, for example. So, you know, we got to be careful while some of that can be done. Uh, we have to be extremely careful that the hymns remain uh, sound and solid in any theological message that's being given. But in and of itself, the church uh, does say that you can use more contemporary hymns. In fact, some contemporary hymns, a good number of them, in fact, are more recently written in, in, over the last 30, 40 years, uh, and even in the last 10, 12 years. I was looking at a sheet the other day with some more Catholic-authored contemporary hymns that are just that, written and music put to them by Catholic writers, uh, authors and writers of the hymns or songs themselves. But we do need that balance. This is why it's very important for pastors to keep an eye out for this, um, that, that the theology stays sound, and that it does stay communal rather than just uh, intrapersonal between me and Jesus. Because the Mass itself, where these contemporary hymns are being sung and played, that is an act of public worship, congregationally speaking. So they should be communal. And the, the hymns like the Osayutaris, the Tantumergo, Holy God, We Praise Thy Name, the beautiful Marian hymns, Immaculate Mary, uh, Ave Verum Corpus, uh, you know, all these beautiful hymns, uh, you can just see that they're written for community. They're they're written for the congregants to be chanting them and singing them aloud beautifully. Doesn't mean that the more contemporary hymns can't be the same thing, but with the contemporary hymns or songs, more appropriately called, I believe, we need to especially make sure that that's the case. So uh, great, great question, uh, Rose. We thank you so much for that. And Father, if I'm not mistaken, uh, several years ago, three or four years ago, uh, Pope Francis, through the Pontifical then Academy for, uh, or Pontifical Office for Divine Worship, uh, put out sort of a, an exhortation about the kind of music that should be used in the public liturgy and mentioned, you know, some contemporary songs that you hear quite frequently in America by name as really not being appropriate for that, for that purpose. Yeah, I believe that's the same document that also mentions uh, instrumentation. Uh, it may not be the same document, but we need to be careful as well about the type of instrumentation used and not, not rock it out too much, mm -hmm. uh, because that's just not in the tradition of the Roman rite. Remember, when it's all said and done, we're celebrating the Reformed Roman rite of the Second Vatican Council, which carries over from the traditional Latin rite. And while there are changes, for example, like the vernacular, the Vatican II documents and the post-Vatican II documents still say that the Reformed Roman rite of the Second Vatican Council is to be celebrated with all due reverence, solemnity, and devotion with a noble simplicity. Those are the five huge terms. All due reverence, solemnity, and devotion with a noble simplicity. And so in, in, in uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium itself, the document on the sacred liturgy's reform uh, from the Second Vatican Council, it's one of the 16 documents of Vatican II, it states very clearly, the ordinary parts of the Mass should have Latin retained pride of place. Now, it doesn't say the Latin has to be always and everywhere used and constant. It says pride of place meaning all else considered, we should hear the Latin more than the vernacular for those ordinary parts of the Mass. So, for example, the, the Gloria, the Credo, the Sanctus, Holy, 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 the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. Latin should retain pride of place. Granted, it doesn't say Latin should be used constantly with these ordinary parts of the Mass. It doesn't say that. It says it should retain pride of place, meaning we use it more often 
than not. So this is why it's so important, you know, in the seminary formation, liturgically speaking, as the as the seminarian gets closer to his diaconal ordination and he takes his liturgy, liturgy classes, liturgical classes, that these points are very, very well uh, laid out and taught. And Father, you had one other point quickly you wanted to make about the springboard? Yeah, and this springs from the liturgy, so I'm glad Rose's question was the first one, and, and it dovetails with our springboard topic on, on what does mystery mean in Catholic theology. Great example here, Jack. It's, it's after the two consecrations of the precious body and the precious blood, when the priest comes up from the second genuflection after the second consecration, because he genuflects after each sacred species is consecrated. When he comes up from his second genuflection of the second consecration, which is of the precious blood, what's the very, very first words out of the priest's mouth? The mystery of faith, mysterium fidei. Now, the mystery of faith is spoken out loud by the priest there after the second consecration of the precious blood, referring not to the response by the people that follows, but to the mystery of transubstantiation that was just enacted on the altar. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Plenty of time for your calls and still some uh, open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Next up is Anne. She is in Bay City, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Anne, you are on with Father Wade. Yes, Father. Uh, I have... Uh, four siblings, and we all went to the Catholic school and made our, you know, first communion and, and confirmed and everything. And 50 years or so ago, my sister got married, and that's when she left the church. She chose to go to her husband. He was Protestant. But she got married in the Catholic church on Mackinac Island, and she told me just last week she's going to join some Protestant church. And I'm, does she still have a chance of going to heaven? I pray for her every day. Well, that's great that you pray for her every day. Uh, you know, to answer your question directly, you want to read the Second Vatican II's, the Second Vatican Council's document titled Lumen Gentium. It means light of nations. You know, the Vatican II documents, as are most church documents, they receive their Latin title based on the opening line of that particular document. So uh, Lumen Gentium, which is the dogmatic constitution on the Church, it's one of the 16 documents of the Second Vatican Council, uh, it talks about this very question, whether Catholics who have left the faith uh, can indeed attain heaven. And there are some things that go into play here, because indeed, where there is salvation, there is the Catholic Church. Uh, but there, at the same time, we, that's the, the positive formulation. The negative formulation is there is no salvation outside the Catholic Church, but where there is salvation, there is the Catholic Church. So the same thing is being said, only in a positive and negative sense. So in Lumen Gentium paragraphs 12 through 15, or more appropriately titled sections, sections 12 through 15, we read about the Catholic who willfully, knowingly, knows and believes that the Catholic Church is the one true Church established by Jesus Christ, but still nevertheless purposefully with willed intention and deliberate will, a deliberate intention and will, chooses to leave the Church. That does not, not bode well for them. So my question as a, as a pastor, when you tell me about your sister, my first question would be, how much does your sister know 
uh, Anne, that the Catholic Church is the one true bride of Christ established by him, the one true church established by him. And how? And if she does know that and believe that, is she, how much is she willfully of her own will and, and deliberate intention choosing to forego it and turn her back against it? Because that does not bode well for her. Now, this section, number 12 through 15, is not long. Um, you'll recall, Anne, that at the, the Good Friday Passion Service that we have each year on Good Friday, which we serve Holy Communion at, but it is not a Mass. It's the only liturgical day of the entire liturgical year where we do not have a Mass in the 24-hour period, because on Holy Thursday night we have the Mass, and then on Holy Saturday evening, as far as calendar day goes, calendar day goes uh, Holy Saturday evening we have the Easter Vigil Mass, the, the Mother of All Vigils. But on Good Friday specifically, that 24-hour period of Good Friday on the secular calendar, there's no Mass, but there is a communion service. But there's usually a 3 p.m. or thereabouts, a 3 p.m. Passion Service. And you'll recall the general intercessions, and that are prayed uh, during that um, Passion Service before Holy Communion is brought out to the people. We pray for all these different categories of individuals, those who do not, do not believe in God, those who believe in God but have not come to an explicit uh, revelation of him, uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters, our non-Christian brothers and sisters, Christians who do not share the one true faith, meaning our Protestant brothers and sisters, all these categories, I believe there's 10 of them, all these categories are listed. Now, what are these categories of the general intercessions, also known as the universal prayer? What are they doing at this Good, Fa Good uh, Friday Passion Service? They're fleshing out Lumen Gentium number 12 through 15, section 12 through 15, because we pray for their, all of these individuals, we pray for their unification in the one true church that we know by her four marks that we say in the creed every Sunday, one holy Catholic and apostolic, and which we celebrate a feast day in honor of every February 22nd, the, the, the feast day of the, of the, the universal feast day of the chair of St. Peter, where we are praying for unification of everyone under the chair of Peter, Matthew 16, 18, when our Lord gave Peter the authority to bind and loose, imaged by, by keys. What you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And we see this beautiful image in one of the very large portraits in our Chapel of Divine Mercy here at the Fathers of Mercy. You can see it in the sanctuary, looking at the altar on the right-hand side. If you go to fathersofmercy.com and look at our chapel uh, sanctuary photos. But th this 12 through 15 section of Lumen Gentium spells out all these different categories, including those who are Catholics, but for some reason are not embracing the faith fully, and that's where your sister falls under. So it's up to you to evangelize her. Now, you're not your sister's savior, okay? Jesus Christ is her savior, Anne, but you are your sister's prayer warrior, and you are your sister's evangelizer. I'm going to repeat that. You're not your sister's savior, but you are your sister's uh, prayer warrior, and you are your sister's evangelizer. That's where you have to set your peace and, and root your peace in, in trying to get your sister back to her faith of baptism. You could even ask her, did you have a bad experience one time? Did something happen one time in the church that's turned your back against it? What is it that's the blockade for you to returning to the church? Do you not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? If you do, how can you turn your back on it? Do you not believe in the reality of confession? If you do, then why don't you want to take your mortal sins there? You know, it's going to be a come-to-Jesus meeting between you and her, 
and you want to do it privately, charitably, and rarely, the three hallmarks of giving somebody fraternal correction is that it be done privately, charitably, and rarely, because they're an adult, rarely, uh, you want to do it. In other words, if every single time you see this sister, you bring all this up, you're just going to drive her away further. But privately, charitably, and rarely, we want to try to evangelize others to bring them back to the fullness of truth. This is uh, th These three hallmarks or guideposts, privately, charitably, and rarely, are St. Thomas Aquinas's guides for giving fraternal correction, and he defines fraternal correction as an attempt to bring back a loved one back around to the fullness of truth, a loved one who has strayed from that truth, like your own sister has as you say. So you want to do it privately, charitably, and rarely. You want to realize that in doing so, you don't have the Savior complex personally, and because you're not her Savior. You are rather her evangelizer, and you are her prayer warrior. You want to, and you told me in, your, in the asking of your question, you do pray for her every day, and that's a beautiful thing. Offer prayers and sacrifices for her, offer holy communions for her, and even go down to the parish office and sign up to have some masses said for her. Uh, this could be, this could be an, a demonic op oppressive influence. It could be uh, a, an influence that from something of her own past that some, for some reason there's some type of a, of a blockade there. And so fasting can be very, very beneficial here. Prayer and fasting can be very, very beneficial. Jesus tells the apostles directly when they ask him, why couldn't we cast it out? Why couldn't we cast out the demon? Jesus says some, there are some that can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. So I'm not saying your sister's possessed. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that there could be an oppressive, uh, traumatic uh, experience or uh, something in her past that serves as a blockade to her being open to the fullness of truth. And these are the kinds of conversations you want to have with her privately, charitably, and rarely. But before you start doing this proactively, Anne, I want you to read sections 12 through 15 of Lumen Gentium, the Light of Nations document from Vatican II. It's a beautiful section. It talks about all these individuals of different categories that we pray for on the Good Friday that we want to see under the chair of Peter that we celebrate every year as a feast day on February 22nd. Great question, Ann. Thank you so much. Next up is Joe. He is in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Joe, you're on with Father Wade. Hey, Father Wade. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, as my wife and I are getting old, along in years, we're attending more and more uh, funerals. And we see a trend that's starting to show itself is that now they have uh, celebrations of life, and they don't have masses anymore, less and less masses. And it brought the question up my wife and I were talking this morning. Is I mean, has something changed? Has, yes. Is there yeah. advantages to having masses or, not ha or disadvantages to not having masses? Other than the obvious. Okay, the question you're asking gives the precise reasoning why I wrote my book, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, the Church's eschatology, from the Greek word eschaton, which means the last. Four last things in the Church's eschatology, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, three of which will apply to each one of us personally, whether we want it to or not, whether we want them to or not, and that is death, judgment, heaven, or hell. One of the two reasons why I wrote that book, Joe, is because the late teens to 40-year-old Catholics who are lapsed, who no longer practice their faith, they have no idea what to do for their parents when their parents are dying on their deathbed from an ongoing illness, for example, let's say cancer, 
nor do they have any idea what to do if their parent dies suddenly. Because they've been lapsed from the faith throughout their late teens all the way through their 40s, they have no idea to call the priest. They have no idea to ask for the last rites. They have no idea to ask for the apostolic pardon for their parents before they die. They have no idea to ask for a funeral mass per se, a mass of Christian burial per se, once the parent has died. They don't know to ask these things because they don't know the faith. The second reason why I wrote that book, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, is because I met too many Catholics who practice the faith, they, they actually practice the faith, but they believe that purgatory is automatic, meaning there's no way to avoid purgatory. Well, that's a heresy. God's plan A for us is to go straight to heaven when we die. His plan B for us, if you want to call it that, is to go to purgatory, because at least the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven, right? So we could call it God's plan B for us, but, but his plan A for us is to go straight to heaven when we die. The only reason why we would go to purgatory is if at the time of our earthly death, there's still temporal punishment to atone for, for our already forgiven mortal and venial sins, thereby meaning the opposite of the doctrine, right? Uh, the truth of the doctrine. If at the time of our earthly death, we have already atoned for the temporal punishment for our already forgiven mortal and venial sins, we go straight to heaven when we die. And that's God's plan A for us. But getting back to the first reason why I wrote that book, the lapsed Catholics who have no idea what to do for their parents to ask for the five elements of the last rites while they're dying, nor do they, nor do they know what to do for their parents once they've died and asking, for example, the, the, the vigil rosary, or the, the, the rosary celebrated before the funeral mass, nor do they know how to, to ask for a funeral mass per se, you see these services that in many cases aren't even Catholic, or it's just a simple uh, Catholic graveside committal service because they don't know to ask, right? And if they do have a mass, nobody knows the responses. I've met deacons and priests who have officiated at funeral masses the deacon was with the priest at the funeral mass, and throughout the, the responses of the mass, the, the, the 50 to 80, 100 relatives that are present, and friends, and friends, not just relatives, nobody knows the responses of the mass because they don't practice the faith. And many of the relatives, keep in mind, are indeed Catholic. They're technically baptized Catholics from infancy, but they don't know the responses to the faith. So many pastors, in turn, to take on this attitude, which I'm not saying is wrong. Just like the church recommends when it's a mixed marriage, uh, a, a sacrament of marriage, but between a mixed couple, one, one is Catholic, one is not, it's probably more proper to have the marriage ritual without the nuptial mass so that communion is not served and thereby you don't give communion to people who shouldn't be receiving it. Whereas if both parties, the bride and the groom, are Catholic, yes, you, you, you hopefully would have a full nuptial mass. But if one is Catholic and one is not, it's probably more appropriate to not have the nuptial mass, but to have the full sacrament of matrimony ritual. So it still ends up being a full sacramental matrimony, but just without the mass, because you're going to have over half to three quarters of the people attending who shouldn't be receiving communion, and about a fourth that who can, okay, and you want to respect that. So in a mixed marriage, you can have the nuptial mass, but, but the church's documents say you just may not want to have the nuptial mass because you don't want to confuse people when it comes time for Holy Communion. Maybe a lot of pastors are viewing it this way. Look, nobody of this deceased person's family practices the faith. So if I have a funeral mass for them, they're going to traipse up for Holy Communion when they shouldn't be receiving Holy Communion. You know, that could be one thing they're thinking. I'm not saying it's right. And this now dovetails with your question about 
Aren't there benefits to having a mass for the deceased? You bet there is. Even after death, the holy sacrifice of the mass is still the most highest form of prayer. It's the source and summit of the entire Christian life, even for the Christian who's passed away through death, earthly death. You bet the suffrages of a mass are the most powerful, more powerful than a rosary, more powerful than a divine mercy chaplet. Not that we can't pray those two beaded prayers before the funeral mass, we certainly can. I know of, of priests who have told me, yeah, the, the family didn't want the rosary before the Mass. I, I asked them, Do you, would you like a rosary for your loved one before the Mass? No, Father, no thanks. I asked them if they want a Mass. Would you like a Mass for your loved one? They were Catholic. No, well, we just want the graveside committal service. Because they don't know. <laughs> they don't know the faith. They don't know to ask for the five elements of the last rites when the, per, when the loved one is still living. But five elements of the last rites is holy confession if the dying person feels they need it. The anointing of the sick is number two. The prayers of commendation for the dying is number three. Uh, the apostolic pardon is number four. And I'm losing... Oh, and holy viaticum. Yeah. yeah, holy viaticum. One's final holy communion. Those are the five elements that constitute what we still call, quote, unquote, the last rites. When, when you're talking all five cohesively together, you can still refer to them as the last rites. Now, if the person isn't near death, they receive the anointing of the sick, one of the seven sacraments. But the last rites includes the anointing of the sick, which is per se one of the seven sacraments. So you're going to talk to different pastors who will tell you, hey, I offered the, the living family members the rosary or the divine mercy chaplet. I offered them the funeral mass. I offered them the graveside committal service. I offered them all these things, but all they wanted was the graveside committal service, if even that. So, you know, th that these are the reasons why. They don't know the faith, so they don't know why to ask for these things when the loved one does die. Does that kind of help you out, Joe, to see the bigger picture of all of this, what you and your wife have experienced so frequently as you find yourself going to more and more funerals? Do you kind of see the bigger picture now? It does, but the question is now, as prayer warriors and evangelists, Ah. Should, we push, should we push the the thought of the Mass and the Rosary on them a little bit harder, or should we kind of just step back and let them do what they're going to do? No, you should evangelize the benefits of suffrages for the dead once the, the, the loved one does die. The benefit of a Rosary, the benefit of a Divine Mercy Chaplet uh, before the funeral Mass, the benefits of the full funeral Mass, the, the cr Mass of Christian Burial, the, the benefits of the full rite of Christian Burial. How beautiful is it to see the casket being lowered into the ground or, or the urn being placed into the columbarium while the priest is literally sprinkling it with, sprinkling it with holy water while it's going into the earth, while it's going into the columbarium, if it's an urn with the ashes. How, the, the symbolism and the reality of their baptism recalled in Jesus Christ while the body is being lowered into the earth. Don't the loved ones see the beauty of that? And yet they reject it because they're ignorant. They don't know the faith. This is why I wrote the four last things. To answer your question, yes, we have a duty to evangelize, Joe. You and your wife want to live your baptism. You want to live your confirmation and evangelize this more and more and more and also encourage priests to preach about this more and more and more from the pulpit. Great question, Joe. Thank you so much. We head next to the great state of Florida. Leslie's a first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Leslie, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. Thanks for taking my call. I have a question for you. We have a priest here who, um, after consecrating the host, he says audibly, um, hello, my love, 
and he's speaking to Jesus, uh, to me it just sounds very familiar, uh, maybe too familiar. Um, I'm sure it's not part of the consecration. I can't talk today. Um, but I just don't know if that's an acceptable practice. It kind of bugs Great. me. Great question, uh, Leslie. You, you ask uh, through our call screener if it's uh, illicit or just weird. It's both illicit and weird, and it's invalid and weird if he's not doing the actual words of consecration. If he's doing the actual words of consecration for both species, and he says, hello, my love, it's at least uh, licit, uh, excuse me, it's at least illicit and weird, and being illicit meaning it's being done against the law of the rubrics, okay? It's illicit and weird. Now, but if he's not saying the words of consecration as they are in the Roman Missal, uh, it's invalid and weird. In other words, if he's not saying the proper words of consecration and is still saying, hello, my love, it's invalid and weird. If he's saying the words of consecration, it's against the law because those words are not in the Roman Missal. Uh, and it's it's illicit and weird. So you're you're right to have your conscience pricked about it. Uh, you know, in most cases, we want to take the, the proper form of fraternal correction, which I talked about earlier. You want to approach the person privately, charitably, and rarely. But chances are, in a case like this, it's not worth approaching the priest privately, charitably, and rarely, because he's so dramatically doing his own thing. It sounds very pompous and prideful. So what I would do is I would just write a very, very charitable letter. Keep it short. Keep, keep it short and simple. Uh, that you have a concern about your pastor during the words of consecration, saying these words and then quote the words, and send the letter to your bishop. Just let the bishop know directly, because I think you're going to have a better chance that way uh, of getting it changed. But he should not be doing that. Uh, it's introducing personal piety uh, into the universal piety of the church, that is specifically the celebration of the sacred liturgy, at the highest point of that liturgical piety, the consecration of the source and summit, uh, the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. So he's, he's greatly doing a disservice on a variety of fronts here, these fronts that I just listed, and it's a grave disservice to the people. And priests who do things like that, they're usually not, it's usually not worth approaching them directly with St. Thomas Aquinas's three hallmarks of giving fraternal correction, privately, charitably, and rarely, because they're just too prideful, they're just too pompous. What they're doing is too out of mainstream to try to give them a correction. So I would just write the bishop directly, but in your letter to the bishop, keep it very charitable, very matter-of-factly, and very short, so that the priest can address the issue at hand, okay? And be sure to give your information. Do not write the letter anonymously, okay? You want to you let the bishop know who you are. If you write it anonymously, he's just probably going to toss it. Um, and, and so, you know, you want to let him know who you are and how he can contact you in case he, the bishop, has any further questions. But the priest should not be saying audibly, hello, my love, after the consecration of one or both species. Uh, that, that's just not proper. Thank you so much for a great uh, question, Leslie, c regarding uh, the proper celebration of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. You know, Father Wade, when you're channel surfing around uh, uh, the TV these days, there's, there's uh, any number of, of programs that have uh, uh, ministers from our separated brothers and sisters that have large followings on television and, and do, uh, you know, a variety of shows. And, I, and I've often thought that 
if you walked around Times Square, which is kind of a melting pot of not only America but the world in New York City with a lot of people, and mentioned the names of most of these people, I think the overwhelming majority of people that you were speaking with would have no idea who you were talking about. Yet, a tiny little nun less than five feet tall whose only motivation was to minister to Jesus in every individual that she came to, if you mentioned her name in the same crowd, I think virtually <laughs> all of them would know that you would know who Mother Teresa is, and we celebrate her feast day today. That's right. On September 5th, we celebrate the, the feast day of St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, foundress and beloved saint of modern times. Uh, you know, she loved Jesus Christ, and she loved the poor, and she found Christ in the poor, Jack, and, and she loved Christ there in the poor. Her life, it seems, is what it means for the Eucharist to be the source and summit of the entire Christian life. Uh, extraordinary holiness, uh, which flowed from a prayer life at which the Mass was absolutely at the center for her. Uh, Mother Teresa entered religious life as a sister of Loretto, and then while riding on a train in India, she heard the Lord's invitation to tend to the poorest of the poor and to found a new community. Her belief that physical and spiritual hunger need to be attended to for humans to live as God intends them to live led her to found the Missionaries of Charity, an order comp comprised of nuns, priests, and brothers today. She once said, quote, we will allow the good God to make plans for the future, for yesterday has gone, tomorrow has not yet come, and we have only today to make him known, to make him loved, and to make him served, today and today only. Our Lord told us not to fret about tomorrow, which is in God's hands, so we do not worry about it. We focus on today. End quote. I just, I just love that quote, because with my busy schedule, Jack, it's nice just to focus on today, okay? Uh, following her death in 1997, it was revealed that Mother Teresa had experienced a spiritual dark night for some 40-plus years. Some 40-plus years. And yet, look at the work she carried out. How fantastic is that? And so we honor her in a very, very special way today. And I, <clears throat> I want to also say, Jack, that this coming Sunday, or excuse me, a, a week from Sunday, on Sunday, September 13th. No, that is this coming Sunday. Uh, no, it's a week from no, it, Sunday. It's a week from Sunday. Um, the Oma family in Poland will be beatified. Nine members of a family, the first time in the 2,000-year history of the church, including an unborn child. All nine of them died by the Nazis. They were martyred for having hid Jews in their home, including an unborn baby beatified in the Catholic Church. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and social media maven Mr. Ace McKay, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless.